This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, and we're back. Philosophy Takes on the News has been away for a couple of months, but we're glad to be back with you for this PTOTN series, or if you prefer, season three. You may well know who I am, but if not, I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the afternoon of Friday, the 24th of February, 2023. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, as it has done across the whole year, of course. This week, US President Joe Biden visited Kyiv and other parts of Eastern Europe. The UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was trying to find a political and trade settlement for Northern Ireland, and there was another earthquake in Turkey. This week, we're just going to discuss the one topic, namely the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as today sees the one-year anniversary of the invasion. As always, though, we'll see what else we get on to. Joining me today, we have Aaron Wendland, Vision Fellow in Public Philosophy at King's College London and a Senior Research Fellow at Massey College in the University of Toronto. Hi, Aaron. Hey, everyone. How are you doing, Simon? Pleasure to be here. Uh, great to have you. Uh, we've also got Gerald Lang, who is Associate Professor at the University of Leeds. Hi, Gerald. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. Good to be back. And a new guest for us, uh, Angie Hobbs, who's Professor of the Public Understanding of Philosophy at the University of Sheffield. Hi, Angie. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. A pleasure to be here. And it's great to have all three of you with us. OK, so let's get to our main item. And um, to start, uh, I think we should have a quick advert. Uh, Aaron, do you want to tell our listeners about the series of benefit talks for Ukraine you've been organising, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am organizing a benefit conference for the Ukrainian Academy. The title of the conference is What Good is Philosophy? Uh, the Role of the Academy in a Time of Crisis. And the aim of the conference is to generate support for students, scholars, and publicly engaged academics in Ukraine who are currently working under very difficult conditions. Uh, maybe it's useful to your listeners to say just a quick bit about the background and motivation for this. So I spent last summer in Ukraine reporting on civilian life for the Toronto Star. They commissioned me to write a story on the state of higher education in Ukraine. And unsurprisingly, it's in a very difficult state. Uh, 7,000 academics have left the country. Hundreds of university and academic institutions have been bombed or or damaged during the fighting. Plenty of academics have been displaced within the country. And one thing all the rectors of universities told me without fail is that they see all this international support for Ukrainian academics who have left. Um, but there's very little support for academics in Ukraine. And in some sense, the academics who are now at the University of Chicago or the University of Toronto on scholars at risk programs have it a bit better than the people in Ukraine because the people in Ukraine are trying to work in a war zone. So I thought I could write this story about what's happening in Ukraine, or I might be able to do something to help get some international funding to the academics in Ukraine. So the Benefit Conference is my attempt to generate funding to support academics working in Ukraine. Uh, the conference will be broadcast by the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. It will appear on their website and their YouTube channel. 
The event takes place March 17th, 18th, and 19th. We have some very famous keynotes. So Margaret Atwood, the world-renowned author, is giving a talk. The arguably the most famous historian of uh, Ukrainian history, Timothy Schneider, is speaking. We have two of Ukraine's preeminent public intellectuals, Mihailo Vinitsky and Vladimir Yermolenko, talking. And then we have a host of prominent and influential philosophers, Sally Haslanger, Judith Butler, Timothy Williamson, Philip Pettit, the list goes on. Angie is participating. Thank you, Angie. Um, And I guess Simon will include links in the show notes. Um, So if people want more information, check it out. And this is your opportunity to help academics in Ukraine by donating at this benefit event. Thanks, Aaron. That's uh, really helpful to know. Uh, And yes, the links are all in the show notes. So again, it's 17th, 18th, 19th of March. uh, And it's going to be hosted by the Monk School uh, YouTube channel. And it's an amazing list of uh, very prominent public intellectuals and philosophers. And there's a there's a, a, a site where you can give uh, money, isn't there? Aaron? That's right. Yeah, yeah, to raise funds. So a worthy cause, and it should be great. There's some great talks coming up. So please, everyone, uh, go and catch some of them uh, in March. Okay, then let's uh, then switch to discussing this, uh, what's happening in Ukraine and, and the one-year anniversary. Um, it seems to me that across the year, the wars ebbed and flowed. Um, but at present, it seems as if we're in a difficult stalemate period, although seems is an interesting wor- word there. Perhaps often with anniversaries, um, things might change. And in particular, uh, I'm sure the, the military machine of both countries is thinking about how it might gear up for a, a new period. Um, certainly a few news publications have marked the anniversary by discussing possible preparation for negotiations with people debating the pros and cons of negotiating with an aggressor such as Putin. Uh, that's one thing that I think is is very interesting uh, to ask and what we might want to pursue. Um, is proper negotiation with Putin a necessary evil? Should we refuse to negotiate even if this will lengthen the suffering? What price would be worth paying? Land, smaller economic reparations in order to secure peace? These are kind of big questions to ask after such a terrible conflict when we have this this anniversary so i'm just starting off with those questions we might want to discuss some others so angie do you want to come in come in first on on these yes thank you well whether and when negotiations happen should of course be for ukraine to decide but from an ethical point of view I think that whichever ethical approach you adopt, whether it's uh, consequentialist or rights-based or virtue and flourishing-based, I think from whichever ethical point of view you take, Putin has to lose. Because his attack on Ukraine, horrific in itself, is also an attack on human rights, democracy, truth, compassion. And if we want to live in a world where those values hold sway rather than aggression and cruelty and lies, then he has to lose. Because if he gets away with this, I don't think he will stop. And I think that other autocracies such as China will be emboldened. And for instance, Taiwan will then be even more at risk than it is at the moment. So I think we have to fight to defend a rule-based international world order. 
back in the end of 2016, I remember writing a blog, uh, which I think is still on my website, about how this was a very, very critical juncture in the history of liberal representative democracy, and that it was a real fight to be had. And I think the issues that we are facing now are a development of what we saw starting in 2016, and indeed before. So I hear talk about why don't negotiations allow Putin, say, to keep the Donbass or part of Mm -hmm. the Donbass. But one, I think that would be deeply immoral. But and also, I think it would be naive, because we know that a lot of the attacks on Ukrainian uh, targets are being launched from inside Russia at the moment. And if the border moves west, then they're just going to move ever, ever closer to Kiev and it'll be salami slicing. So I I think it would be both immoral and naive uh, to think that allowing him to keep bits of Donbass, for instance, would would be enough. I, I think it would not stop there. But as I said, it should be for Ukraine to decide. Yeah. Thanks, Angie. Uh, Gerald, Aaron, any thoughts on that? Gerald, do you go next? Yeah, I think, I mean, so I, I, I agree with Angie that it looks as though the political imperative points towards the necessity that, that Putin loses. But you also can see, Angie, and, and this seems right as well, that it's up to the Ukraine whether they negotiate. Well, if they negotiate and then part with the Donbass region, then it seems that they're guilty of the folly <laughs> that you've just described. So it might be it's for them to make their mistakes if it's indeed a mistake. Uh, If they do that, then it seems to be okay for them to do that. But it might still have the effect of emboldening aggressors, including Putin, but also perhaps China, uh, to continue aggression. And it will also, you know, furnish us with a lesson that if you are a really determined aggressor, you'll get what you want. You just need to keep on aggressing for long enough so that the defender has little choice but to go in with you. So I think, yeah, so I, I was just wondering what you thought about that. Yes, I wouldn't want to use the word guilty of any decision that Ukraine decides to make at the moment. It, it's their country being decimated in this way, and it's not for us to criticise what they choose to do. If they do decide, and at the moment I don't see any evidence of this, if they do decide to let Putin keep part of the Donbass, I think there will be the effect of him continuing to salami slice. I'm not going to call the Ukrainians guilty for doing that when you have your own people, your own being killed, your own infrastructure being blown to smithereens. I'm not going to use a word like guilt. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the problem is, is that the language suggests that all Ukrainians are standing united and they're all voluntarily resisting Russian aggression. And it might be that there isn't, in fact, a large degree of unity to this defensive effort. I, I have no reason to suppose otherwise. But at the same time, there's a, there's a military chain of command. And Zelensky calls the shots, and soldiers get killed, and regions get decimated, and citizens get killed. Ukrainians suffer the burdens of the determination to maintain the conflict. So whilst I can see that it would be, I know, a mistake for different reasons to be too critical of whatever Ukraine does. Nonetheless, the Ukrainian regime seems answerable to moral considerations just like any other actor. And presumably, it would be a mistake. It would be a moral mistake 
to uh, allow the war to go on to the point where Ukraine just becomes rubble, you know, where millions of Ukrainians are killed, where whole regions are decimated. Now, I, I, I'm aware of the awkwardness of saying that because it, it, it looks like every criticism you could you might advance to Ukraine then looks like a way of allowing Putin to get what he wanted, and that's going to stick in everyone's crawl, um, of course. But nonetheless, it, I think the issues, the moral issues, are delicate. We want to maintain our condemnation of the aggressor, but it, it's not that the defender has no uh, has nothing to answer for at the court of morality. So that, that, that's the delicacy, as I see it. Aaron, I mean, it's it's interesting that we bring this up that Ukraine um, potentially being completely destroyed, as Gerald suggests, if they don't at some point decide to sit down at the negotiating table. But this at least seems to be the rhetoric coming out of Ukraine still a year on, that um, we're going to fight for every inch of our territory. And and the reason for this actually loops back to negotiations, but namely that they just feel like they could have any kind of good faith negotiations with Putin and, and with Russia. And so any kind of negotiated settlement, they think, would at best be tenuous and just preparing, uh, you know, giving Putin and the Russians a chance to take a time out, regroup, restock. Potentially both sides would do that. Uh, so they, they think they can't negotiate with him in good faith. So we'll fight to the bitter end. This seems to be at least the rhetoric coming out of, of Ukraine that they're very skeptical of negotiations because they're very skeptical of the party they're negotiating with. And so they think we're if if we're going to have this fight now, we're going to have this fight later. Well, it's already here. So let's just let's go to the bitter end. This is the rhetoric anyway. Um, I mean, I, I agree with sort of with both Angie and Gerald about negotiations being up to the Ukrainians. They have to decide the peace. But as with all political negotiations, it's not completely going to be up to the Ukrainians. The there's a large anti-war movement in Germany, for example, and it was very difficult for the Germans to. There was there was a lot of pressure put on the German government to supply tanks to Ukraine, and the Ukrainian people are fighting this war, but they're doing so on the back of massive Western support, and their ability to to fight and potentially negotiate is dependent on all this support, right? Their position in the negotiations. And so whatever the Ukrainians do, they have to factor in their decision-making where the, their, their allies stand and how willing their allies are to continue to support them. So ultimately they have to make the decision, but they certainly have to calculate what their allies are doing and how willing their allies are to continue um, supporting their war effort. Which brings us to the really difficult issue of Crimea, where allies do not necessarily agree with, or not all the allies agree with uh, the rhetoric coming out of Ukraine at the moment about wanting to retake Crimea. And this is where what Gerald was saying is so pertinent, because it's the Crimean situation is peculiarly delicate. So what everybody seems to agree on, whatever their take on what should happen next, is that it's Crimea that Putin really cares about. He, that he really cares passionately about what is going to happen in Crimea more than about the Donbass. But that can lead to two different approaches. So one approach, which as, as I can see it, most of the Ukrainian command is taking at the moment, is well, 
we're not, we, we need to negotiate, if at all, from a position of strength. And to be in a posi- position of strength, we need to be at the borders of Crimea, threatening to retake it, and at the very least having destroyed the bridge which links it to the Russian mainland so that the supply chain is is cut off. And unless we're in that position of really being serious about threatening to retake Crimea, we won't be in a position to negotiate. On the other hand, you get people saying, well, if that's the situation, then Putin might go even more AWOL than he already is at the moment and might lose it even more than he's already lost it. So... I said that Putin needs to lose, and I stand by that. But it's never easy in a war to know what counts as victory and what counts as loss. And it will be, I think, mainly up to Ukraine to decide what is going to count as victory here. The price of uh, taking on a dictator always goes up. And as Gerald was saying, you know, time is of the essence here, because time is on Putin's side. He's just got more men he can send to the front. Uh, And that's, of course, why we hear Zelensky calling so urgently for fighter jets and things at the moment, which I'm sure we'll come on to. That's another very difficult issue. But speed needs to happen if Ukraine is going to have a, a high chance of winning this war, because Otherwise, Putin can just sit it out and keep sending more guys to the front because he doesn't seem to care how many get killed. Gerald? Yeah, I mean, Crimea is interesting, isn't it? Because that just happened in 2014. And I suppose the if there was a consensus view at the time, the view was, well, if he has Crimea, he'll go quiet. Someone like Putin doesn't go quiet for very long. And that gives us a clue as to what might happen uh, once he has his way with Ukraine. I mean, the other countries that used to be part of the Soviet empire uh, are then in trouble. Okay, so there's that. But but I think what Aaron uh, reminded us of is that it's not just Ukraine's decision because Ukraine keeps going because of aid that we're supplying. So I think the question is, are we obliged to keep on giving up arms and resources so that the Ukrainian war effort can be maintained so that Ukraine can itself make the determination of when to sue for peace or when to negotiate. It's complicated, isn't it? Because that that can't be purely Ukraine's decision. Ukraine can't make decisions for us to support Ukraine. We have to take a wider view of what's at stake and the accumulation of losses and the threat of escalation to other countries, other, other parts of Europe, the I don't know if, how idle they are. We can't afford to treat them as idle. The the you know, nuclear blackmail um, that has to be taken into consideration as well. Now I, I I'll be honest. I don't quite know how to take those questions. I don't quite know what the answers to them are. I think I suspect the consensus is this: if we all stand firm and keep on supplying, then something might happen in Moscow. <laughs> you know, maybe Putin will get killed or. Um, There'll be a change of heart or the oligarchs will just get sick of missing out and, you know, um, things will turn against Putin. Maybe that's the thinking. I don't know who really thinks. I mean, I know Ukraine have have had some spectacular successes in recent months, but I don't know how likely it is uh, that they can have, how they can enjoy military victory against the Russian machine. As Angie says, 
Putin will just keep on sending people to the front. And even if they're poorly trained, if there are enough of them, then it looks as though it's going to be a very difficult campaign for Ukraine to win. So it's it's very difficult. There must come a point when it wouldn't be justified in maintaining this kind of aid. I, I don't think that point has come yet because of you know the the very great dangers that will attend russian success so that is something to be considered but but there must come a point when we shouldn't do that and it's very difficult to identify when that point is yeah uh, aaron and angie both want to come in just some just some thoughts from from me though so i think just very briefly i mean one thing that i do fear is uh, putin being toppled right now because as far as i see it uh, the people who might replace Putin might be more pro-war and zealous than than we have with with Putin at the moment because he's he's let slip the dogs of war inside Russian society um, as far as I can see. Uh, that sounds like a, a terrible thing to say, but I think it's 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 probably true. There's a kind of realpolitik here where you know no solution without the Ukrainians in the room, but it doesn't mean that the Ukrainians only have to be in the room. I think it's it's fairly obvious that just as Putin only listens to aggression and threats because all he respects is power. So it's pretty obvious that that uh, the US will have to get involved and they'll have to be um, kind of organising the negotiations because Putin just thinks that he's kind of similar to the US president. That that's you know, and that's the only thing that will get things over the line. But I mean, this is all premised on the idea that we still have to have quite a grim period ahead of us where. Um, either Russia takes lots of casualties, or there's, or actually a stalemate does continue. But I can't. It's not obvious what the what the path is to any of this yet, in, in my mind. Well, if we're here to discuss the really hard questions, we we need to raise the issue of fighter jets because it's another yeah. very difficult issue. Uh, it would obviously be very dangerous if fighter jets were supplied and they were used by the Ukrainians to attack targets within Russia, because that is there's going to be, you know, a huge danger of immediate escalation. We really would be looking at a NATO-Russia conflict, potential World War Three. However, I do note two things. Uh, one is that, of course, fighter jets don't have to be used to attack targets within Russia. They can be used for reconnaissance and they can be used to provide uh, military backup for uh, ground offensives within Ukraine. Would one, would it stop at that? I have no idea. It's obviously very, very dangerous. But I also note that though I hear political leaders completely understandably saying we've got to be very careful about fighter jets, every military commander I've heard, certainly in the West, has said very unequivocally, Ukraine is not going to win without new, more fighter jets. And I listen to the military commanders as well. They've said, you're being unrealistic. You're being pie in the sky. They, if, if you want Ukraine to win, they are going to need new Western fighter jets. So we're back to this question. How important do we think for the world that Ukraine wins? I still think it's very important, but I'm hugely aware of the dangers. Yeah. Aaron? So just in- interesting on this point of Ukraine winning, I wonder sort of exactly what that means. Mm, yeah. Um, in some ways, right, if you listen to the, the government in Kiev, Ukrainian victory 
involves taking all their territory back, including Crimea. It involves effectively prosecuting Putin for war crimes, and it involves reparations. And it seems like the only way to get all of those things is to march on Moscow. How else are you going to get Putin to The Hague unless you capture the Russian capital? And this seems, I I don't want to say impossible, but a very, very unlikely scenario if that's the bar for Ukrainian victory. So maybe what we need to do is think slightly differently about what Ukrainian victory looks like. And in some ways, if you follow the history of, of Ukraine over the past 20 years, they've been struggling and fighting for freedom uh, the Maidan revolution and so on. And, and and one of the ways they conceive of this freedom is moving closer to the West, joining the European Union, participating in these Western communities. So I wonder if a Ukrainian victory involves some kind of settlement on the front line where the lines are drawn at some point, wherever they happen to be at this particular point in time where the armies are exhausted. And then Ukrainian victory is NATO membership and quick accession into the EU so they can have the lifestyle that in some ways they were fighting for. Uh, I don't know if this is imaginable and I can't speak for the sort of Ukrainians, but it seems that this might be a version of victory that's consistent with what they're fighting for, uh, even if it doesn't involve the victory that they're talking about now, which is Putin in The Hague and reparations and reclaiming all their territory, which I think would require marching on Moscow. So I don't I don't know. This is just Angie mentioned Ukrainian victory. So I thought I'd say some things about what that means. Angie and then uh, Chand. Yeah, I, no, I completely agree. It's always difficult to know what counts as victory, what counts as defeat, when a war begins, when a war ends. I wanted to say that I wondered if Zelensky talking about we're going to reclaim every inch of Crimea, I wonder if I wondered if that was his version of Churchill's, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them in the hills, we will never surrender, etc. speech. Because we wouldn't have fought a Nazi occupation on every beach and on every hill and in every forest. That wouldn't have happened. There would eventually probably have been some kind of surrender, or very possibly. So, But it was a brilliant rhetorical move of Churchill to say, to the uh, Nazis, you have a really tough battle on your hands. And apparently, I don't know, but apparently Rommel understood exactly what Churchill was doing when he made that speech and and knew that this was just a way of signalling, you have got an incredibly hard, long fight. How much do you want this? How much do you want to take somebody else's country? Was we're going to def- you know defend our own, and I just wondered if that was Zelensky's sort of Churchillian rhetorical move. There, he's trying to make the negotiating position, or you know, he's trying to put them in as strong a position as he possibly can. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think rhetoric is part of it. So if you're going to put your shoulder to the wheel, and uh, then you're going to talk tough, and of course that's justifiable. So you know, you're not going to. You're not going to qualify the national determination to repel the invader. You're, you're, you're going to make the rhetoric as soaring and as defiant as you possibly can. That, that totally makes sense. But I, I also think that means it's not a completely reliable guide um, to how these things may develop over the next few months. Um, now, 
I mean, the, the kind of list of demands that Aaron mentioned, uh, you know, Putin in The Hague, the Crimea restored, reparations. In a way that, to, uh, well, to me, that looks like the sort of opening bid of something that might look like negotiations. So they'll, they'll back down probably and say, look at us, we've been flexible. Uh, we, we might, in fact, abandon the claim to retake Crimea. We'll, we'll, we'll abandon the claim to have Putin uh, put on trial in The Hague. We might abandon the demand for reparations. Um, so, you know, this is what happens in negotiations. You you know, you start off with a kind of outrageous offer and then you pretend that you've been a reasonable party to the negotiations by, by backing down. But you, the backing down is simply relative to the inflated target you were originally going out to bat for. So... So, I mean, so maybe it's a kind of sign of hope in a way. Uh, what, what would be good would be for Russian troops to leave the territories it invaded last February. And um, of course, Crimea is, is still a war crime and it's still a disgrace, but perhaps one thing at a time. It might be a useful kind of bargaining chip. We'll, we'll leave you Crimea uh, in some sense to be settled. Uh, I take it the legal status is still an illegal invasion. Um, but we'll leave you Crimea if you back out of the territories. I mean, we have to remember in these negotiations that, that uh, another aspect of realpolitik is that Putin can't go home with his tail between his legs. He's got to sell it as some sort of triumph. Again, that, that might make us feel sick, but that, that's how it has to be. Um, he has to represent it as getting something for Russia. Um, so we'd probably put up with that if um, the fighting came to an end in a way that didn't um, disturb the integrity of the Ukrainian state. So so we all want to get in, don't we, on this? So I'm, I'll, I'll say something first than, than the other, other two of you. So in one sense, Gerald, I agree with you completely, and I'm always a big fan of realpolitik, and, and actually there has to be negotiations. We've discussed this before on the programme, not just about Ukraine, but remember I made some comments about what was going on in the 1970s and 1980s, backdoor channels between the British government and, and the IRA, right? So I'm, 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 I'm quite uh, clear-eyed about this, but... The thing that just catches me is we're dealing with Putin, and he he's he's kind of he's an autocratic terrorist. I mean that's that's what he's become over the last few years, and I'm just worried that. So in one sense, all this sounds reasonable if you're dealing with a regime that you can sort of trust and sort of can be contained. I think the big question hanging over us is how much do you trust? Putin and and the state which he's built over the last twenty or so years, and I think that that's the big worry that these might be good negotiations. We see, you know, Ukraine and, and people support them seem as if they're the good guys, but then two years later, I mean, Angie mentioned us, I think earlier, you know, he uses Crimea and he just starts and starts again, um, and that's a kind of big concern, I think, for me. Uh, Angie, Aaron, why don't one of you two come in? Um, maybe maybe I'll just say something since I haven't talked about Crimea. I have no particular insight into what the Ukrainian government or military is thinking, but I have been following the sort of Russian language and Ukrainian language telegram channels. And there's whispers that maybe, you know, the next push for the Ukrainians, if they can get the Western um, equipment in time, is is not to try and make a major push in in the Donbass, but to make a real push to Crimea. 
And maybe this is uh, a play in what Gerald would call like a negotiating strategy. We, we really get Putin put pressure on Crimea and that forces him to come to the table. I have no insight into that if this is their actual strategy, but but it seems like you know the, we talked about a stalemate, but it seems that at least on, on the Telegram channels and military bloggers are talking about like what are the next moves of the Russians? There's potentially uh, like trying a pincer strategy where they attack from the north and south simultaneously in the Donbass and try and capture the territory that Putin annexed and then claimed as his own in the in, in the coming weeks. And the whispers on on the Ukrainian side are, th- are that there's a big push to to actually take the south and go right up to Crimea, and whether or not that's a plan to try and retake Crimea or it's a strategy to force people to the negotiating table, I don't know. But it seems like we're we're getting to a point where the fighting is actually very fluid, or or it's going to be soon. We have a winter stalemate, but things are going to start moving, and then when things start moving, that sort of reshapes the negotiating possibilities. Um, so I don't know where it's going, but I just, these are <laughs> the whispers you hear on, on, on the blogs and, and telegram. Um, so maybe, maybe there is something about put, making a push on Crimea as a, as a, a chance to get people to the negotiating table. Um, maybe I, I want to say this is taking it in slightly different direction. We've talked a lot about sort of Ukraine making decisions uh, and, and then the extent to which any decision they make is dependent on, in some ways, they have to factor the support they're getting from the West. China also, I guess, has to make some decisions based on the support, whatever support it has from the international community. And recently, the Chinese have offered something of a peace plan. It's not really a, a, a peace plan. But uh, I'm a bit worried about what China is doing now, because one way to, to see what China is doing is they offer a quote unquote peace strategy. They have that peace strat- strategy rejected by the Ukrainians and the international community. And then they can say, OK, well, we tried to help. Now we're kind of free to like weigh in as we see fit. And maybe this means they start supporting the Russian army. And so there's this big like China question hanging over this fight as, as to where are the Chinese? Are they going to su- support? The, is there a point where they start sending arms to China or to the Chinese start sending arms to Russia? And I don't know. It's just interesting that all of a sudden the Chinese are now deciding that we're going to wade into the diplomatic fray here. And to what end? It didn't seem like they were offering a serious peace strategy. So what are they doing there? Does it give them like, okay, we tried to in good faith you know, negotiate some peace. The Ukrainians rejected our plan. Now we're now we're free to do what we want or something. I'm not sure what's going on there, but it's it's there is this China question hanging over this whole conflict. Uh, Angie, yes, well, I think we really need to talk about major players in the world who are not, at least outwardly, against what Putin is doing, and who are not siding with the U.S. and Europe and the U.K. because. It, Listening to the reasons why they are, at the very least, abstaining at the UN, it seems that the main reason is because they don't want to be seen to be just going along with the West, being led by the US, because they're still angry with a lot of justification about Western colonialism and aggression in the past. And they, that seems to be the main reason 
Not that they think that what is going on uh, in Putin's Russia is great, but that they really, really want to take a stand and to be seen to be independent of Europe and the US. Now, so that, on the one hand, you could think, oh, that's very depressing. We can't get rid of our history. We can't get rid of those past wrongs. But it also gives, I think, room for discussion with these countries, which at the moment are at the very least abstaining and not speaking out against what's happening. Because there, there is room for a discussion and to say, look, we're really sorry about what we did. We understand why you're so angry. But do you not think that even if you don't care about democracy, but do you not think that compassion, that truth matter at all? There, there must be some values. Do you not think that these values matter more than your dislike of the West. So I think there might be room there, but we must not be complacent. We can't just assume, because it's evidently not true, that the whole world is against Putin's invasion. It absolutely isn't. Major players, not just China, uh, have, have not spoken out. But as I said, the reason they haven't spoken out does not seem to be primarily that they think what Putin has done is great, but that they want to show their independence from the West. And that gives room, I think, for tactful, courteous, respectful conversations. This is a strategic matter rather than a moral one. How do you, what what should we rely on China to do? I agree that it doesn't want to be seen to be jumping because America says jump. Nonetheless, I think hopefully, hopefully that there might be some, you know, incentive for China to be seen as being a kind of serious peace broker or of threatening to withdraw its support for Russia unless Russia withdraws from Ukraine. Now, I don't quite know what the scenario would look like to make it do that, but any buttons that can be pressed in the international community should, I think, be pressed, short of, of course, just turning a blind eye to an invasion of Taiwan, because that might be one of the things that China's after. Of course, that, that's non-negotiable. That cannot happen. So, But, but I, I, I agree with Aaron and Andrew that, that China is, you know, might turn out to be a really, really useful player in, in what happens over the next few months. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's clear from what I've read that going back a, a little while, uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin actually have, uh, you know, personally get on very well, and this was going to be the start of a of a new kind of, you know, almost political bromance that would be uh, very good for their countries, but very worrying for the world. And the, and the relationship seems to have cooled a bit, but there's still something there, and I think China is absolutely pivotal in this in this conflict, as indeed is is India, uh, I think as as well. So I think. And I think it goes back, I mean, I don't know what, what else to say, really, but it goes back to the, the thought that there is this tension where clearly Ukraine has to be taking lead about what happens in its own country. But it goes back to your thoughts, Gerald, that it can't be only up to Ukraine what happens, because there are all these major geopolitical kind of plates moving around the world. This is why it's such an, such an absolutely essential moment, I think, in, in the 21st century. Uh, this this period. Um, so we've all got to try to get it right. And I don't know what getting it right looks like. Um, Angie? Yeah, we, we've been talking about how difficult it is to define victory in any war, including this one. But we, all sh- but we should also remember that 
victory doesn't necessarily happen all at the same time. You know, think of all the trials that happened, you know, in Nuremberg and so on, way, way after the formal end of World War II. So Erin was saying quite rightly, you know, we can't just march on Moscow. That's not going to be happening. But what I have noted, the extraordinary dedication and in many cases, the bravery of so many uh, people in Ukraine, in government, in uh, in academia, in all sorts of NGOs, collecting evidence, collecting evidence of war crimes, of rape being used as a weapon of war, collecting ev evidence of the environmental damage which is being done, which is absolutely huge. The, the water, the air, the soil is going to be polluted for very many years. Uh, you know, the damage to wildlife, to ecosystems, just catastrophic. And the courage of just ordinary scientists and conservation workers going out very close to the front line in, in places which still have unexploded ordnance, just extraordinary, and collecting detailed evidence, all of which can be brought in future years. So I think, as Aaron was saying earlier, you know, maybe there needs to be a decision about what an interim victory might look like. Would it be leaving the Donbass? Would it be absolutely at the borders of Crimea? You know, there's discussion about that. But then all the other stuff about the crimes being held to account can take many years. In fact, so I was listening to an interview, must have been about two, three, four months ago, uh, with one of the, I mean, he's a Brit, I think, is one of the chief prosecutors for in the International War Crimes Tribunal. And he says it does take a long time to collect this evidence, but the wheels of justice do move. And in fact, if you look at um, other conflicts, such as the Balkans, no one would have thought that some of those generals and those political leaders would have ended up in, in, uh, in a courtroom, but they did. And there's, there's dogged and quiet determination there on the part of many people. I think you're absolutely right, Angie. Um, any last thoughts from, from anyone on this? Gerald? Yeah, I mean, just thinking about Ukraine, I mean, we think about the kind of um, the global political environment. Um, it's very, very complex and troubling. But just to go back to the Ukraine, and, and of, of course, yes, they've been um, so heroic and brave and hardworking and defiant. It's really admirable. I mean, it seems to me that, that there are two types. I mean, I, I was thinking before we recorded this episode, well, what, what do we say now of a kind of moral nature that we wouldn't have been saying last February or last March or last April? I mean, what, what difference does the passage of time make? And I, I think there are two contrasting tendencies. First of all, look at all the deaths and the destruction and injury of environment, of, of towns and cities. Um, on the one hand, that, that gives Ukraine some sort of reason to want to put it to an end. So it kind of hastens the moral case for negotiation. But on the other hand, um, at the same time, there's kind of thought about sunk costs. So look at all the sacrifices that Ukraine has already made. Now, the people who have died in the course of this campaign, I mean, it's intelligible to think that the people who have died will have died in vain if Ukraine simply succumbs to Russian aggression. Whereas if Ukraine repels Russia, then there's a sense in which those people who have already been sacrificed in the struggle won't have died in vain. Their, their, their deaths, in a sense, will be redeemed. So I don't think that 
second argument about sunk costs and redemption is that may not be successful at the end of the day, but it it it's it's an intelligible thought, and then in fact it 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 gives you a kind of moral pretext for digging your heels in. So you know, I, I'm not going to acquiesce to this bully, no matter how much punishment he piles on me. I'm just going to dig in, and and, and in fact that that gives you some sort of moral argument for digging in. It it helps to make sense of how the struggle up to now might be worth it and might still be redeemed. So maybe both those thoughts are kind of going on in the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people generally. Aaron, why didn't you have the the last word? Sure. Um, I just want to, I guess, say that I don't think it's a political possibility of the the Ukrainians or Ukrainians supported by the West marching on Moscow. But I think it would be amazing if that was a possibility that could happen without nuclear war or World War III, um, and that's the way things ended. Um, but I guess I, I sort of want to end on a question Gerald raised about how much we should support uh, and continue to, to provide aid to the Ukrainians. And to my mind, in, in, and based on my sort of experience in Ukraine, is that they are fighting for our values. They are fighting for the things that in some ways we've taken for granted and, and, and potentially shamefully taken for granted. Um, if we watch the struggles with democracy and the eroding of democracy and, and, and civil liberties in, in the West, the Ukrainians are fighting for this and fighting for this very bravely. And I see their fight as our fight. And in some ways, I'm getting involved in this because I see our values at stake and they're fighting for things we're fighting for. So I'm trying to do what I can to support them. I'm not the, uh, the US or, or, or the EU. I cannot provide tanks or things like this, but I definitely think we should provide them aid as long as we can and as much as we can because their fight is our fight, or at least that's how I see it. Yeah, nicely said, uh, Aaron. Listen, let's uh, leave things there. Uh, really excellent discussion. Thanks, all three of you. Aaron, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, Simon. Thanks for having me. Uh, Angie, thanks for joining us for the first time. Oh, thank you. It's been a really enjoyable discussion. Thank you. Great. We'll ha- we'll definitely have you back. And Gerald, thanks for being with us again. Thanks very much, Simon. Uh, and thanks to you for listening. Hope you can join us again soon for another episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm-hmm.